0: folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE 30 So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE 30
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is the Norman Invasion Part 12. It's been a few weeks now since I've covered the story of the invasion but this episode picks it up at a key turning point when the Gaelic kings show unprecedented unity and rise up against the Normans. This show does need to backtrack on some ground we covered in Part 10 as I mentioned a few weeks ago I did make an error that needs to be addressed. So I will begin in 1173 as Strongbow, having spent a few months fighting for his king, Henry II in Normandy, returns to Ireland to find the island facing upheaval and revolt. Before I begin I want to remind you that the deadline for my crowdfunding campaign for my new book, 1348 A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland, is fast approaching now. This may well be the last podcast before the deadline arrives on December the 14th. The response from you all to date has been amazing. I am really grateful because it's only through the support of listeners just like you that this book is becoming a reality. If you want to get behind this exciting project, you can still avail of some of the cool rewards available to funders. One that might interest you is a limited signed hardback first edition copy of the book there will only be 100 of these copies printed. If you want to have this rare edition, just go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. As I said previously, this is the best way to donate to the podcast. If you have been thinking of contributing, why not do it through this crowdfunding campaign? While supporting the show, you also get something cool in return. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash book. Now, to begin, we must return to the year 1173. In late 1173, Strongbow boarded ship in Normandy and set sail for Ireland. No doubt he was nervous as to what he would find when he landed back in his conquered lands here. He had many enemies and rivals and he had been overseas for many months. Strongbow had left Ireland earlier in 1173 with the Lord of Meath, Hugh de Lacy, after Henry II had summoned them to support him against his rebellious sons and barons. In Normandy, the ancestral home of his family, Strongbow had distinguished himself in battle. In August 1173, while Hugh de Lacy stayed in Normandy with the King, Strongbow was allowed to return to Ireland on the condition he sent more troops to Henry. While unsure of what lay ahead of him back in Ireland, the journey home from Normandy, which included several days at sea, must have come as a welcome respite for the Norman lord. The previous three years of his life had been nothing short of hectic. Indeed, in many ways, all the important events in Strongbow's life had occurred since he had come to Ireland in 1170. Although in his early forties he had spent most of his life in a political wilderness having made a grave error as a young man. Back in the 1140s he had supported King Stephen in a civil war against his sister Maud. However in 1154 Maud's young son became the unchallenged king Henry II. Strongbow soon found his hopes of great power blocked by this resentful young king. A 12th century chronicler once said of Strongbow, that he was great in name rather than great in prospects. The invasion of Ireland had changed all this. He had taken the chance to aggrandize himself and embraced it, working ceaselessly to make the most of it. He had been constantly on the move fighting numerous battles and sieges while proving himself a skilled negotiator. But this experience had also been gruelling. So the imposed break aboard ship in late 1173 can only have been a welcome rest. Little did he know, it would be the last chance for a break he would have in a long, long time. Once he landed in Ireland in late 1173, although it might sound surprising, the first thing he had to do was weaken his position. When he left King Henry II in Normandy, Strongbow had agreed to send more troops from Ireland. This saw some of the most able battle commanders on the island, including Robert Fitzstephen, the longest serving Norman in Ireland, depart. Strongbow had little choice though. Henry had finally forgiven the sins of his youth, but by not sending troops he could jeopardise this. Nevertheless, as Fitzstephen sailed from Ireland, Strongbow would very shortly be ruining the decision to allow this happen. While he and his supporters had conquered much of Leinster between 1170 and 1173, he was increasingly in a weak position given this exodus of his supporters, something that was not lost on the Gaelic Irish kings who had lost so much power to the Normans. However the absence of these military commanders began to take effect first on Strongbow's own troops and as we shall see soon he faced a mutiny in Ireland. In part 10 we saw how the constable of Strongbow's forces in Ireland, Robert de Quincey, had been killed in an ambush in Offaly in 1172. The question of his replacement had caused ructions amongst the Normans. The most obvious choice to replace de Quincey was one of Strongbow's most loyal commanders, Raymond Le Gros. He had distinguished himself in numerous battles in Ireland and was highly popular with the troops. He had one condition, however, before he would take the role. The hand of Strongbow's sister, Basilia, in marriage. Strongbow rejected Raymond's offer. It appears he did not want to elevate Le Gros, a man he saw as a potential rival. Naturally, this outraged Raymond. Strongbow was in effect snubbing him with a classic you're not good enough for our family line. Raymond, insulted and humiliated, left Ireland immediately returning home to Carew Castle in Wales. In 1172 the loss of this man was not that problematic. Strongbow appointed his uncle, Hervey de Montmorency, as constable but the loss of one of his best soldiers would return to haunt Strongbow. On his return to Ireland in 1173, Strongbow had been given money by Henry II to administer the Norman lands in Ireland. However, he wasn't long back before this money was completely gone and grumbling was quickly heard in the army camps when the soldiers weren't being paid. It's easy to understand why. Ireland, at this point, was not exactly an enticing place. 1173 had seen what the annals of Inish Fallon described as great pestilence this year which killed a great number of people. This, along with no pay, and what seems to have been a lack of confidence in Hervey de Montmorency's ability to lead them, saw the soldiers petition Strongbow with an ultimatum. He was to recall Raymond Le Gros as constable to lead the army or they would return home, or possibly even defect to the Gaelic Irish. Strongbow had no choice but to relent and word was sent to Raymond at Carew Castle to return back to Ireland. This obviously meant that Strongbow also had to relent on the point of Basilia's hand in marriage. On hearing this Raymond boarded ship and arrived in Wexford shortly afterwards and soon had a dramatic impact. Once on the island Raymond took measure to restore the morale of the Norman troops. Rather than punish the would-be mutineers he instead indulged them. He unleashed them on the Gaelic Irish to the south and west of Waterford in an orgy of raiding that took them as far as the monastery of Lismore. While they saw off the limited opposition they faced, the war booty taken sated the troops' immediate demands. However, the raid quickly backfired and contributed to the increasing opposition to the Normans in Ireland and soon their powerful position began to unravel. Tension built up between the Normans and even the Gaelic kings who supported them and then Strongbow suffered the worst possible loss when Raymond Le Gros, the popular leader of the troops suddenly had to leave Ireland again when word arrived his father had died in Wales. The command passed back to Strongbow's uncle Hervey de Montmorency the man who had been in command of the troops when they had threatened mutiny. Something that didn't bode well given what lay ahead. After Raymond returned to Carew in the wake of his father's death, Strongbow's position in Ireland was the weakest it had been in years. Indeed, there were few other Norman leaders on the island once Raymond departed, given many others were still fighting overseas for Henry II. Strongbow was in a precarious situation, something that had not gone unnoticed around Gaelic Ireland and it didn't take long for the kings across the island to see this as their chance to strike against the Normans. Perhaps the greatest sign of Norman weakness came when the one man Strongbow could have hoped to rely on in Gaelic Ireland, Donal O'Brien, the King of Thomond, turned on him. Donal, the great-great-great-grandson of Brian Baru, aided by forces from Connacht, led by the son of King Rory O'Connor, pushed into Ostry and attacked a Norman castle which had been built at Kilkenny. This castle, built from earth and timber, was not very defensible and the garrison quickly realised they could not hold out. Rather than mount what would be a pointless defence, they instead abandoned the fortification and fled to Waterford. This was a major victory for Donal. Strong points like this castle at Kilkenny was how the Normans maintained control So when he took the castle, a vast swathe of territory passed into his orbit. It was clear yet another moment of crisis for the Normans had arrived. This was perhaps the most serious situation since the siege of Dublin back in 1171. Strongbow and his uncle Hervey could not allow this attack from Donal pass unchallenged. But what could they do given their weak position? Left with little choice in early 1174, they marched out from Dublin, aiming to attack Donald's territory of Thomond to teach this rebellious king a lesson. However, as they moved south, they heard worrying reports that in the Kingdom of Connacht, Roy O'Connor, Ireland's most powerful king, was mustering his forces west of the Shannon. If O'Connor attacked, victory would almost be out of the question for Strongbow. He needed backup. Messengers were quickly dispatched to Dublin calling on the townspeople to send more troops to the army. Strongbow and Hervey then stopped at Cashel to wait for this support to arrive. In Dublin the messengers were well received. Opposition to the Normans in the city had ended in 1171 and a several hundred strong force led by four Anglo-Norman commanders left the town heading south to rendezvous with Strongbow. However, Cashel was about a three day march from Dublin and on the way south they broke their journey at Thurles. Their movements had not gone unnoticed though and Donal O'Brien was now stalking this army. No doubt aware that the Normans were amassing a large force to attack him, he decided to strike first. With the element of surprise he attacked the army camp at Thurles at dawn, catching the Dubliners completely off guard and according to the Norman chronicler Gerald of Wales, 400 were killed including their four Norman commanders. When word of this reached Strongbow, a cashel, it seems panic set in. No longer sure of the situation with both Donal O'Brien and now potentially even Rory O'Connor mobilising against him, he decided to withdraw. He immediately dispatched word across to Carew in Wales begging Raymond Le Gros to return as quickly as possible. At this point it is no exaggeration to say that the entire Norman project in Ireland was at risk. As Strongbow was increasingly vulnerable after the retreat this only served to spur on Rory O'Connor to act. Indeed the army he was amassing was impressive with soldiers from all across the northern half of Ireland rallying to his standard. This was Rory's moment in many regards. Every significant Gaelic power north of Dublin including the O'Neills of Western Ulster were willing to take the field against the Normans under his command. This was the only time the O'Neills at least appeared to have been willing to accept the supremacy of the O'Connors. The moment was perfect for a massive Gaelic counter-attack across the Shannon at the weakened Normans. Before we continue with this I want to take a quick break.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too.
0: Rory's assault on the Norman colony began when his alliance swept across the Shannon River into Mead in 1174, destroying the castles Hugh de Lacey had erected at Trim and Duleek. The garrisons just fled as this army approached. In Meath, Rory then turned southeast, pushing into the environs of Dublin. If the town fell, the Norman conquest in Ireland was, if not doomed, seriously at risk. Rory would almost certainly destroy Dublin and its port, which had proven so fickle to him. However, for Rory himself, the prospect of a battle in and around Dublin stoked up bitter memories. In 1171, he had been defeated under the walls of the town after a two-month siege. While Rory and his allies bore down in Dublin, far to the south though, very significant events were taking place. Raymond Le Gros having received Strongbow's plea to return arrived in Wexford in 1174 to find Ireland in chaos. Indeed his arrival in the port of Wexford came just in time to put down a planned uprising against the Normans. Accompanied by 400 soldiers who had travelled with him from Wales he immediately went first to Waterford to meet with Strongbow and then the two men returned to Wexford together. While Raymond undoubtedly helped steal the Norman forces in Ireland, the depth of the crisis they faced was unparalleled. Indeed, he had scarcely met with Strongbow and joined him on a journey from Waterford to Wexford when a revolt broke out in the town. The governor of Waterford, Fratellis, was assassinated and the population rose up, massacring Norman men, women and children in the streets. However, this uprising in Waterford ultimately failed when the garrison managed to hold out in Reginald's Tower. Remarkably, I think as I've mentioned before, Reginald's Tower still stands on the quay in Waterford today. Even despite the imminent dangers they faced, Raymond de Gros still had his eyes on the future and demanded that before any fighting be done he would marry Strongbow's sister, Basilia, as he had been promised. While Raymond and Basilia were married in Wexford, the Norman colony around them was crumbling. Scarcely within two days of the celebration, word arrived that Rory O'Connor was threatening Dublin. The festivities had to be postponed and Strongbow and the recently married Raymond now marshaled their forces and marched north to Dublin. What lay ahead seemed set to be decisive. Rory, pushing in from the north, had at his disposal one of the most impressive forces Ireland had seen in decades. The Normans were as weak as they had been in years. Now was the time for a decisive Gaelic victory. One can only imagine the pressure on the leaders on both sides. The outcome of this conflict would be immense. However, it seems the situation got to Rory O'Connor and it is easy to see why. The Normans had outwitted him militarily on every occasion since the arrival of Strongbow in 1170. Now north of Dublin in early 1174, with the prospect of another battle against the Normans ahead of him, his nerve failed and he retreated. Unsurprisingly, given he had just balked in front of the enemy, the coalition he had assembled disintegrated before him. In many regards, this was a major victory for the Normans, even though no swords were drawn or arrows loosed. Arriving at Dublin the Normans pushed on past the city into Mead which had been granted to Hugh de Lacey but had yet to be settled by Normans. Strongbow and his army rebuilt the fortifications at Trim and Dulic which had been destroyed by Rory and then tracked down Magnus Oumwel Shochno, the Gaelic King of Meath, and hanged him for the support he had given to Rory O'Connor. As 1174 came to an end The latest Gaelic attempt to reverse the invasion was in tatters. This was a very decisive moment. As we shall see next it led to some kings and in particular Rory O'Connor fundamentally changing their approach to the Normans. To understand this though we first need to look at how Gaelic kings and specifically the King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor, viewed the world. In 1174, Rory O'Connor was in his mid-fifties and had enjoyed a pretty successful life. He had become King of Connacht in 1156 on the death of his father Turloch, and High King in 1166 on the death of Mercatogh MacLachlan, the King of Ulster. While he had vociferously opposed the Normans in Ireland, this was not necessarily for the reasons we might expect. Indeed, Rory viewed the world in unimaginably different terms than we do. He had no conception of nationalism or a united Ireland at all. The Ireland Rory lived in was broken into several kingdoms and while he claimed to be high king this only meant he had forced other kings to submit to him. In this world where rival kings constantly battled each other to be the most dominant, Rory O'Connor's primary concern was about himself and his family and how they could dominate Ireland rather than any concern for the abstract idea of a nationalistic Ireland. Therefore, in any given situation, this saw Rory ally with, or battle against, other Gaelic kings. When the Normans stepped into this viper's nest in the late 1160s, while it might seem logical to us that the Gaelic kings would unite with each other to drive out the Normans, this could not have been further from the minds of these kings. Their goal, as I've said, was to progress their family and the kingdom they ruled. Therefore, the Normans could be potential allies in the case of some or enemies in the case of others. As we move forward into the mid-1170s, it's important to remember this as the actions of some of the main players from now on might seem quite strange in some senses. By 1175, the major threat to Norman rule in Ireland, posed by the Gaelic revolts of 1173 and 1174, had passed and the time for retribution had come. As the Normans planned how they would deal with those who had revolted against them, the king who must have been most nervous was Donal O'Brien in torment. He had not only attacked and defeated the Normans at Thirlus, but he had also been the only king in Ireland aside from the MacMurray's in Leinster who had been allied to them. He can only have known it wouldn't be long before the Normans came to punish him for this treachery. It was in this context in late 1175 that Strongbow convened a meeting in Dublin where he appointed Raymond Le Gros to lead a force and strike deep into the heart of Donal's territory in Limerick. The town had already been handed over to Norman officials in 1171 shortly after King Henry II had arrived in Ireland. However, when Donal adopted a hostile position he appears to have taken it back. Now Raymond Le Gros was aiming to recapture the town for the Normans but also teach the treacherous Donal a lesson. To do this he led an army of over 400 mounted soldiers and 400 archers south to Thomond. He was also aided by Gaelic scout who were provided by the Kingdom of Ossery which allowed the Norman army to penetrate deep into Thomond before they were spotted. Perhaps even more surprising than this Gaelic support was the tacit support he received from Rory O'Connor. The O'Briens in Munster had been one of the O'Connor's main rivals over several decades so they had little problem seeing them beaten by a Norman attack. Also, no doubt Rory O'Connor was increasingly worried the Normans might attack Connacht and perhaps felt it was best, as the saying goes, To keep his enemies close This however was incredibly short sighted In retrospect The Normans were a beast With an insatiable appetite For power and land Nevertheless in 1175 Even with Rory's Not insignificant support The Normans had some heavy fighting Ahead of them to take Limerick The town was among the best Defended in Ireland Built on an island in the River Shannon Limerick was also ringed by stout walls and towers so if Raymond and his force were going to take the town it would not be easy. Arriving on the eastern bank of the Shannon, according to Gerald of Wales it was Raymond's nephew David the Welshman who tried to cross the Shannon first. He waded on horseback through the dark depths of the river successfully plotting a course to the other side, however others were less sure about following him. Clad in heavy armour, if their horses put one step wrong and they fell into the water, they were sure to drown. Indeed the next man to cross, a knight, Geoffrey Judas, was drowned. David the Welshman was however soon joined by a second Norman, Mailer Fitzhenry, who did successfully cross the river. But by this point the townspeople were raining missiles down upon them from the walls. This was a crucial moment. If these two were driven back or killed, it would sap morale from the Norman army. Raymond Le Gros, recognising the importance of the coming few minutes, according to Gerald of Wales, rallied his supporters with these words. Men, we know that you have in your make-up a sturdy natural valour. We have tested your courage in so many difficult situations. We have been shown the way and thanks to the courage of our comrades a stretch of water which hitherto seemed impossible has in fact turned out to be fordable. Then, referring to the two Normans already across the river, he said, Under no circumstances must we allow one who has undertaken this feat to further our common cause to be within an ace of death for want of support while we look on. Raymond himself then led the way into the Shannon to be followed by the army. They successfully forded the river, only losing three men, two archers and a knight named Guido, who were drowned. Buied on by this, they then assaulted the walls of Limerick and quickly broke into the town. The massacre that followed appears to have been savage. Looting took place as Gerald of Wales tells us they were greatly enriched following the sack. This was a stark lesson not only to the people of Limerick but also to Donal O'Brien. However, his nightmare was only beginning. As the Normans took Limerick around the same time Rory O'Connor attacked and burned vast tracts of his kingdom of Thomond. The cooperation being shown here between Rory and the Normans was only the beginning however. While the Normans and Rory were destroying a mutual enemy in Ireland, around 500 miles away in England, negotiations to hammer out some shape of lasting agreement were taking place between emissaries of Rory O'Connor and Henry II. This probably had little specifically to do with what happened at Limerick but was just another reflection of how Rory O'Connor's attitude to the Normans was changing. He had utterly failed in any major attempt to repel the Normans militarily and from his perspective drawing a line under these losses was probably desirable. Also, as I've mentioned earlier, he did not have necessarily any natural unity with the other Gaelic kings. In England... Henry II also wanted stability in Ireland and engaging Rory was one way to achieve it. While Rory seemed unable to repel the Normans, he had shown in 1174 he did have the ability to severely damage the Norman territories in Ireland. The two kings therefore had, to some degree, common needs in the short term at least and this resulted in what has become known since then as the Treaty of Windsor. This treaty was a reflection of the situation developing in Ireland and was not an agreement between equals. In the text, Rory is named as Henry's vassal and agreed to pay him one-tenth of all cattle hides in Connacht. However, he was implicitly recognised as High King of Gaelic Ireland. In the Treaty of Windsor, Ireland for the first time was in effect partitioned. All the lands the Normans had conquered, primarily the kingdoms of Leinster and Mead, over a quarter of the island, was now off limits to Rory who agreed he had no claim over it. Henry, for his part, said there would be no further conquests in Ireland. What either king saw in this treaty is hard to know. Henry had no intentions of coming to Ireland to enforce the conditions on his ambitious Norman liegemen who had desires for greater conquest in Ireland. Rory also had problems maintaining the terms of the agreement. By 1175... He was a fading star. He had little control over Ulster, less over Munster and even in Connacht he had a massive family of sons, grandsons, nephews and cousins, all of whom led factions within the O'Connor family. Trying to bind this group of people to the Treaty of Windsor was akin to herding cats and very obstreperous cats at that. It was clear from the outset that this treaty would not stop conquest and violence in Ireland. Indeed, given what was about to happen in 1176, Ireland was increasingly becoming a frontier society where military muscle was the law, no matter what kings agreed. Tune in next time to see Ireland ripped apart when the Treaty of Windsor collapses and some key figures exit our story. Until next time, Sloan.